More calling Orson. Come in, Orson. More calling Orson. Come in, Orson. Falsche, falsche, falsche. A hard to kill. That was, of course, Mark from the hit comedy series Mork and Mindy that ran between 1978 and 1982 even though I wasn't born I watched all of the Mork and Mindy's and I'm in Berlin now it's 25 to midnight and it has been one long ass day and that is an understatement I left Cork at two o'clock. I left my house in Cork at half past one on, I don't even know what morning it was, Wednesday night, Thursday morning. Walked up, got the bus to Dublin, got on an airplane to Berlin at seven o'clock in the morning. And now I'm sitting in an apartment that belongs to a guy called Mark, who I've never met before. And this was all set up by Kane, the absolute legend. If you guys are listening to this, thanks very much for, for hooking me up with a place to stay. I'm over here in Berlin, first time in Berlin, and the main reason for the trip is because I was visiting the crew that run the gym equipment company Strength Shop and also have a class gym in Berlin called... Berlin Strength. I was there today with Yanni and Anna. Thanks a million for the hospitality, lads. And the Strength Shop crew are coming on board with us with the Palestine Project, the Palestine Community Gym. And if you've been a regular listener to the podcast, I'm sure you already know what the crack is with that. But we're opening a gym in the Ada Refugee Camp in the West Bank this year. And you can find out more about it by going to www fund me forward slash Westbank gym follow us on instagram at the palestine gym and on facebook palestine community gym and donate we need to raise 30 grand to make this happen and get this piece of infrastructure in place within the Eddie refugee camp to help them create another positive space like they have in the Laji center already in the face of the Israeli occupation. I've talked about it at length before, so I'm not going to use this podcast to push it too much, especially at this time of night, because I am bloody knackered. Took me a while to get as far as... Oh, Berlin is class, by the way. What the hell? I went to the a few different places today after I got into the kind of city centre, even though it's quite big. I went to the barn, the coffee roasters and cafe, and the barn are sending their coffee all over the shop there it's been served in the bookshelf cafes in cork the one in the elysian and the one on the south mall and i went straight to the source today and had an unbelievable americano and they've also got this bike system you could go and get an app on your phone and basically you can unlock the bikes with your app and take them and cycle them around and then just drop them off and there seems to be a nice wee bike lane system going on in Berlin as well for pretties I think we'll probably learn a thing or two about bike lanes from Berlin for back at home and 
Well, actually, maybe you're wondering why I put in a bit of Robin Williams at the start, but that's what I feel like. I feel like I'm Mork and you're Orson. I'm in Berlin and you're probably in Cork, although there are listeners to this podcast all over the world, uh, some of them who actually I want to give a shout out to. Alison Murphy, first of all, in Oregon, your stickers are in the post. Alison sent me in a message looking for a few Rebel Matters stickers after seeing them stuck around the place on the Instagram account, so... I'm sending stuff some idea and if anybody else wants some Rebel Matters stickers drop me a direct message on Instagram or Facebook or something like that and I'll, I'll send them to you see you ask you for free if you want them um, they're, they're there and who else Sally McMonagall thanks a million for following the podcast and I don't know why I haven't given you a shout out beforehand because you're liking the absolute shit out of everything that we do and uh, it's great to have you as a follower of the podcast and the Big shout out this week goes to my old mucker Leonard up in Tipperary and Leonard has been tuning in every week and we were in touch with each other this week and as I said before one of the main things that I enjoy about this podcast is the fact that it it puts me in contact with people that I've never met before and it kind of sparks up conversations with people that I haven't spoke to in a long time and Leonard is one of those people, an absolute gent. So thanks for tuning in, Leonard, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon. Anyway, where was I? Talking about Berlin. Oh yeah, so I was going around on the bike everywhere after I figured out that thing about the app, and Shiva filled me in on the crack with the apps. So Garmin and Akara Ashin. But by the time I got back to this apartment, it was about eleven o'clock, and I went there to find some food, and actually couldn't find any. So before this, I was over in Berlin strength, and it did. A nice wee training session. It wasn't anything mental. I just wanted to get the journey out of the legs. Did a bit of deadlifting, some chin ups on the rings, a few Bulgarian squats, and a bit of core. And then cycled back over to the apartment. And when I got settled in, I went out to try and find some food. All I could find was a packet of German salted cashew nuts and a beer, two beers actually. So I'm sitting here sipping on them right now. I'll have a wee sip now, so you know. Very nice. I'm going to put a picture of that on the Instagram because it's just a plain bottle with a white sticker that says beer on it in black letters. It's very tasty. Anyway, <coughs> what was this in there? Yes, so this is the first time the Rebel Matters podcast has been broadcasting from overseas, I think. Although the episode with Joseph Frischek was was from Slovakia um but apart from that this is this is the first one I've been listening to Adam Buxton's podcast recently and especially his interviews with Louis Thoreau they're really good just go and check them out today's episode is a conversation with Dr Martin Daverin who runs the sexual health center in Cork city center and we talked about sexual health, sex work, getting tested for sexually transmitted infections and diseases and the work that the Sexual Health Centre are doing. I think it's a really important conversation. And such is the importance of it that I'm here at midnight after being awake for about three days or something like that getting this introduction ready and I'm going to pop it up 
on the interwebs courtesy of Mark's beautiful high-speed broadband that I just tapped into. So another thanks very much for that there as well. Tomorrow, I'm going to be exploring Berlin. I'm going to go and do some of the historical stuff. I actually had planned to do this intro at the airport or at some sort of monumental historical site in Berlin. But I was knackered when I was in the, the airport. So I just said I'd leave it until tonight. But anyway, this conversation with Martin is something that I'm quite proud that I was able to to give a platform to through the Rebel Matters podcast because it's an area that is highly stigmatised and that we need to work on changing. As you'll hear Martin saying during the podcast, we all have a sexual health. Every single one of us has a sexual health. And at the end of the day, it's our own responsibility to look after that. And I think that you'll find through listening to this episode that places like the Sexual Health Centre and the Sexual Health Centre in Cork in particular is a very open place and a very non-judgmental, friendly and compassionate centre and people behind the service that they provide. So if you do happen to be in a position where you need to avail of services to help with your sexual health, then I think that this listening to this podcast is going to break down a lot of those barriers for you and I would highly recommend getting in touch with them. But anyway, let's get stuck into this conversation with Martin. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Prince of this. First of all, thanks very much for doing the podcast. No, 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 delighted to be asked. It's great to be here. And so we're in the Sexual Health Centre. And can you maybe like tell us a little bit more about the, the centre itself? Yeah. So the Sexual Health Centre was set up in 1987. It was originally set up as Cork AIDS Alliance. And it was a therapeutic organisation which predominantly focused on supporting individuals through their end-of-life care. So AIDS in 1987 was really dark place to be in individuals there was massive stigma in the area around living with HIV individuals who were diagnosed with HIV often couldn't tell their family members couldn't tell their friends didn't have a social support network and the organization started off as that and I suppose Cork AIDS Alliance and the starting of that has really been the foundation for what the sexual health center is today so it went through a transformation in the 90s and we got the name the sexual health center and it's really broadly encompassing of what sexual health is. So the Sexual Health Centre is here um, and it's here as a place for you to come when you have a query or a concern around anything to do with your sexual health in its broadest sense. 
And we really believe that everyone has a sexual health and well-being. So not everyone has any other chronic disease or not everyone has concerns around their mental health and well-being or some people are really physically active, some people aren't, but everyone has a sexual health. So at some point in time, they're going to want to talk to somebody about reproductive health care or contraception or they're going to have concerns around and anxieties around sexual occurrences that have happened. They want to talk to somebody around a sexually transmitted infection. That's what we're here for. We're here to be... Um, the voice of reason sometimes, but we're definitely here to be the listening ear for the people of Cork and the broader community. The You just gave me the tour before we started recording her, and I think what I said, like the thing that really struck me was how welcome in the centre is. Mm. And like, I guess to recap on giving maybe people a bit of a virtual tour if they're coming in, like there's downstairs, there's like the coffee area, coffee and tea area, mm. really nice reception area. Mm. And even the colours of the place and the, the like tone of the whole place is very welcoming. And like, when we were showing me around, I was thinking about the times they had visit, visited the um, like the STI clinic, or whatever, oh, yeah. in the hospital. And mm-hmm. I felt like I don't know if I, this is my imagination, but I think like it was like near. I felt like I was going into a dungeon. Mm-hmm. Like I was like going downstairs, <laughs> and it was like less and less windows, <laughs> and the further down you go, people were looking more miserable. And you're yeah. sitting in a, in a room with loads of other people who are all just like staring down at the ground, being yeah. like, oh, "I hope nobody sees me in here." Yeah, and. Yeah. A place you don't want to be recognised. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So is the the layout and the how welcoming this place is, is kind of um, to combat maybe the stigma that's attached to sexual health? Yeah, like I think everyone listening is going to agree. It's always hard to walk under a door that has the sexual health centre standing over it. Um, and that's something we face every day. We're really lucky here. We have a brilliant team. And the unusual thing is people find it hard to talk about sexual health. So when I started this job, I remember I was like, this is going to be great. Loads of my friends are going to love talking to me about sexual health because it's like such an interesting topic. No, everyone actually, what happens is you have a conversation with them and you say, um, oh, yeah, I work in the sexual health centre. And everyone looks down and immediately turns to my partner as he's a teacher. And that's so much more accessible and goes. So when I was in school and started off a story about that. But sexual health is our every day. So when you're here in the centre, there's nothing we haven't heard before. There's nothing we haven't discussed. We do this all the time and it's an integral part of our lives and it's something we really believe in. And I can take no credit, sadly, for the brilliant colours and the welcoming environment of the centre. That's all to do with the staff that were here long before me. So the sexual health centre is really, I think, a culmination of all of the really positive vibes and the energy and the belief in what the centre does, like at every staff meeting, people on the team say, well, it's the client, the client at the centre. And it really is that idea of client first. So what do you want? And people want to walk into a bright, inviting centre where they can ask any question they want and they can leave informed uh, with their shoulders a bit relaxed and, and without being so anxious about where they are. So how does it work if somebody wants to come and avail of the services here? What happens? So, God, there's a number of ways to do it. So we get about 6,000 phone calls every year to the centre through our helpline. So our helpline will cover everything from a concern you might have about your sexual health. So your sexual health might be something to do with um, a risk exposure that you've had. So you were out the night before and you met somebody and maybe you might be concerned that the condom might be broken or that you might have used contraception and what do you do about that? Or it might be something, a concern around reproductive health care. So you might have a concern around um, uh, menstruation or contraception or getting pregnant and how do you cope with that um it might be a concern around crisis pregnancy it might be a concern 
around how do you correctly put on a condom and use a condom so it is effective at preventing crisis pregnancies and unplanned pregnancies. So, or it might be a concern around your sexuality. So an awful lot of people aren't ready or haven't come to the point in time where they can comprehend their own sexuality and sexuality is a journey for a lot of people. And so the Sexual Health Centre is here to respond to that and to give people a safe space where they can come and ask that question. So that's one way you can access through our helpline. So our helpline number is 021-427-6676. It's a number that everyone should know. So I'm going to give it a plug there. Um, and you can also come, uh, a lot of people actually access us via email. So they'll just email our info email address um, and they'll get put straight through to our senior health promotion officer, Phil. Phil has been with us for a good few years and he is a minor information when it comes to sexual health and he's brilliant at one-to-ones. And people will email him with a query. So it might just be like one quick question they want an answer to because they're at home at night after work and they're panicking and they're on. They've checked Dr. Google who's telling them the worst thing in the world because if you look up, I have a headache, you definitely have a brain tumour. Like it's always more extreme than it's fact. And Phil will respond to them that way. Um, and then the other way is that you can drop into us. So we're open nine to five, Monday to Friday. We're always open for individuals dropping in, having a cup of tea or coffee um, and giving them the space to consider their questions, but also to get the responses that they need. And what, like, it seems to be that sec- the whole conversation around sexual health has definitely developed and has prog- progressed on over the last like 20 years or whatever. And, like, mm. and myself and John Fleming, when he was on the podcast, talked about this briefly enough but the standard of sexual education say for example whenever I was in secondary school Mm. was it would probably be doing it it would probably be um being too positive to say that it was crap because (laughs) I feel like it was nearly the worse than crap yeah it was nearly like a negative thing to get it done yeah so that whole thing has has it progressed or where are we at without the moment yeah sexual health has completely evolved hasn't it in Ireland over the last 30 years so even if you think about legislation that's been implemented, like it's no longer illegal um, to be homosexual. It's no longer illegal to get an abortion in this country. And we've had a conversation about those two things. And as a society, we've considered them and there's been open discussion and dialogue and that's been great at breaking stigma and talking about. Um, But sexual health education is something we still really need to work on. So, yeah, like you, my sexual health education was not the most robust that it could have been. It definitely wasn't comprehensive. People didn't talk about a plethora of different things in the area of sexual health. And um, there definitely wasn't an understanding of condom use or contraception or anything. Um, And that's something that we need to to be more open about. But I also think sexual health is something that continues to evolve. So... As the Department of Education and Skills at the moment, you know, have done their review of sexual education in schools and what we need to do moving forward. And they've released a report on the need for comprehensive sexual health education for young people. But as they've done that, sexual health has again evolved. And we see today just in the news that Minister Charlie Flanagan was down in Cork to talk about revenge porn and the fact that we need to legislate against that. And that's come out after the report, but that's an issue that young people are facing in relation to their sexual health and how are we going to respond to that? Is that something that people come in here with as well? Absolutely, yes. That's something that people would would ring about and would have concerns about. Healthy relationships are a massive part of sexual health. And I think um, revenge porn is one of these 
really hard roads that young people are navigating right now. Um, but it's quite serious as well. Like it is a breach of the law. Um, it's taking images against somebody's will and it's um, putting them in a position of real vulnerability. And it crosses so many barriers. It's not just sexual health. It's your idea of what a healthy relationship is. You're being bullied in your own environment. Your social support network is being challenged and your social group is being challenged. And that's really difficult. So is that... Is revenge porn if somebody has photographs, say, of you not wearing any clothes and yes. then they like put, they start spreading them around? Is that, is that what it yes, is? Yes, yes. So it's well, like blackmail well, It's really? blackmail, totally. And it often happens after a breakup or uh, when some relationship starts to break down, this is used um, to maybe get back at the person or to display power over the person. And it is, blackmail is a great word to use for it. It is that. Um, and we need to start reporting on it more and tackling it more, I think, as a society. Like that's something that we didn't have to deal with 10 or 15 years ago because uh-huh. of the fact that there wasn't so much technology and all yeah. there. Yeah, and I think, thank God, in a way, like I always feel kind of kind of lucky. Um, I think it's always hard to navigate youth, whether we navigated it 20 years ago and there was other issues that we had to face with that they don't have to face today um, versus today when you navigate youth and you do have to deal with online the fact that you can never get away the fact that you're on a phone all the time so you're continuously contactable um, and the online world the crazy world of dating and having to be involved and further bullying and insights into the world and education but also the negative connotations of that and the fact that it's very easy to bully somebody and leave somebody out. And what would you say are the biggest misconceptions around sexual health at the minute? Um, I think when people think of sexual health, they think immediately of sexually transmitted infections um, or they think of HIV. And there, because for those two things, there's massive stigma in the area in relation to those. So individuals go straight to them and that's their primary concern. For in sometimes good reason, you know, they know about those two because they have concerns around them. If it's if they've had a night out and they might have had a drink and they've met somebody and they haven't used contraception, well, then they're worried that they may have contracted something. How will they know? Um, when will the symptoms start to show? What symptoms are there? And how will they get tested in the future? The biggest misconception is there's more sexual health than that. So sexual health can encompass anything from within the centre. We have crisis pregnancy services, so we'll do pregnancy testing for people. We will give individuals crisis pregnancy counselling. So if you find out you're pregnant and it's unplanned and you need a safe space to come and have a talk with a trained counsellor about what your options are and how you feel about being pregnant, then that's something that's encompassed in sexual health. Um, We talk with marginalised and vulnerable groups around their sexual health and wellbeing. So that might be anybody from uh, individuals who are involved in sex work to individuals who are living with a mild intellectual disability, which we as a society often want to infantilise. Um, and then it might be individuals who are injecting drug users. So we need to mind their sexual health as well as young people. Um, and I think we don't think about sexual health and healthy relationships together, but actually one doesn't go without the other. So I think in order to engage in a healthy relationship, to have respect for yourself and respect for your partner, you need to be minding your sexual health and well-being. In terms of the testing as well, from um, even from just in conversation, I know that um, a big worry that fellas have are that if you're going to get tested, that something is going to go up inside your willy mm, and it's yeah. going to be very sore. And yeah. that's like not the case yeah, all the time, like is it? No, it's not the case all the time. And it is, you know what, it's not very sore. So I think all of the 
time. Remember, you're sitting opposite a doctor who has had these concerns at some point in their life as well and is worried about a test and how it's going to happen and what's going to happen. Talk to them. So good communication skills are a key part of all our life. Um, here at the centre, we've an out-of-hours STI clinic and there's also an STI clinic which runs free of charge in the South Infirmary, Victoria University Hospital. And they do brilliant work over there. They're a really lovely team. So if you have any concerns, just talk to them when you're going in for your test and say, I'm a bit worried about this. And they'll put you at ease and they'll take care of you. And it's there every day. It is. There's a blood test and a urine test as well. Yeah, it's not always a... Totally. Yeah. So there's a blood test and a urine test and then there's a swab. And it depends... It's not a one-size-fits-all for everybody. So some people will need a swab, a urine test, and a blood test. And sometimes it depends on your risk exposure um, and what you're concerned about and what your past sexual health behaviours have been um, and what that could potentially lead to. And is there a difference, do you find, even anecdotally, between how men relate to their sexual health and how women relate to their sexual health? Yeah, yeah, there is. I think we we like to categorize a lot. So I think what we kind of think of is that everyone has sexual health well-being and we deal with gender in a kind of a different way. So we categorize a lot into male and female, but actually within the centre we have an awful lot of individuals who access services who would consider themselves to be like non-binary or trans- from the transgender community um, or who consider themselves to be gender fluid. Those people also think about sexual health in the very same way. So mainly we think about the fact that we have had some form of risk exposure. We're concerned about that and we want somebody's help. We want somebody's help either after we've had a symptom. So that could be something like discharge or it could be something like um, itching or a rash. Or we want help after we have sat up all night feeling very anxious about a risk exposure. And we need to talk to somebody about that. Um and it's funny, I think everybody deals with that in the very same way. You know, you either sit anxious or you sit, or you come straight in and you nearly push the door down to try and get into the centre to meet somebody. Um, and that's a completely normal response for all of us. You're worried, you're concerned and you need to talk to somebody. And that's why we're here. That was the purpose of the centre from the very beginning. Yeah, I think that that, that, that kind of, um, the openness and the, that kind of breaking down the barriers it feels like that's it goes a long way to helping people to not feel as afraid to to get tested and maybe even more likely to kind of reconnect with with their own bodies and become more familiar with their own bodies, I guess, in a way. Yeah, and it's so important because I think the stigma around sexual health has led to an awful lot of people not getting tested. So I know an awful lot of individuals, who, and I work here, but I know an awful lot of individuals who have never received an STI screen um, and don't believe they need to and everyone needs to at some point in time you know it's important to take ownership of that for a number of reasons an awful lot of sexually transmitted infections be it like chlamydia or gonorrhea are asymptomatic so you could be carrying the infection but never show any symptoms um, and then things like hiv you know you will go through a period where you're going through seroconversion so you being exposed to the virus you contract the virus you get something like you might get something like a very severe cold or flu and then it goes latent and it's in that time that it's you know damaging your t-cells and you are really beginning to start to be run down and your cd4 cell count is being attacked but you're also at that point um your viral load is quite high so you're you can transmit the virus on quite easily 
but people wouldn't know. They wouldn't be aware that they have it. So until they come in and get a test, they're never going to know the true answer to that. So there's real peace of mind, but it's also back to the idea of healthy relationships. You know, every time you start a new relationship or you enter a new relationship, you should have an STI screen because it's quite respectful to yourself and to the partner you're engaging with. And testing's never been simpler. So in the STI clinic in the South Infirmary, they run Monday to Friday from 9am to 1pm. You can just ring up, get an appointment, they'll see you. And here we do um, rapid testing for HIV. And we do that Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. And we do it in outreach capacity as well. And for that, it's a pinprick. So you get your result in one minute and it takes the tiniest amount of blood. It's like a diabetes test. So there really is no excuse. Like I always think people are worried about going and getting an STI screen, but actually they shouldn't be. I, I remember the first time I got one, like I was shitting myself. <laughs> I like sweating. I was like, could, <laughs> I was looking at the ground the whole time. I was crapping myself. And like looking back now, like feels kind of daft. The fact that I was so worried about it years ago, like, but um. I think maybe that's maybe an important thing to say as well is that it is like fast and it's painless and yeah. it's not like the people that you're going to be communicating with when you're getting it don't know why you're there in the first place. It's not yeah. like, you know, like you're going into some strangers who are really unfriendly or anything out there. So um, what what role does the, the sexual health centre play in, um, say, providing services for, for sex workers in Cork? So um, the Sexual Health Centre is a real advocate for sex workers, actually. We support sex workers in a number of ways. So sex work has been around for years and individuals don't like to think about it and they don't like to talk about it. But it's the reality. And there has been sex work in Ireland, as there has been in many countries for a long period of time. And it's our role to support those individuals. For us, um, we do in, we have a number of services. So we facilitate a support group for sex workers in collaboration with SUE, which is the Sex Workers Alliance for Ireland. Um, that provides a space for sex workers to meet each other and generates a space that's a peer support. So only one sex worker can really know how another sex worker is feeling or empathise with that, um, talk about difficult clients or positive clients that they've had, talk about experiences that they've had that may have been concerning to them or talk about experiences that they've had that they may need support with. The support group is there to provide them with a safe space and the centre itself is a safe space for them. So that's one of the things we do. The second thing we do is we provide them with free condoms within the centre. So sex workers can just pop into reception. They can ask for condoms from our receptionist um, and they'll be given them without question, without query. We're not, we're not here to question their work. We're not here to, um, to get them to answer a questionnaire or, or to make them feel um, more stigmatised that they are by higher society. We're here to actually support them and stand with them in the choices that they've made. You mentioned there that sex work has been going on for years and seems to be a part of society that doesn't really get that much light, light shone on it yeah. uh, that often and like from a from an overview, overview kind of point of view is it possible to get like like what does the, the sex world world look like is, oh, yeah. is connected with um 
like it's been connected with human trafficking and mm. there's obviously other elements to mm. it as well. So, mm. so I think um, sex work comes in a number of iterations and I think that's probably what people find quite difficult. So for um, sex work, you can think of it in terms of individuals who've made a choice. So some individuals are individuals who want to be sex workers. They have considered it. They have... Uh, they are em- embracing that and they are business people who want to work in that industry, have considered their options and this is a positive choice for them. Those individuals are an awful lot of the individuals that we meet here and those individuals provide their services online. So they will upload their profile onto a platform online, onto a website, com. They will provide all of the information around how you can access their services, how you can book services with an escort um, and what um, what kind of services they provide. And that's a real, in many ways, a business model. You know, that's the decision they've made and that's what they're doing. That is one portion of that society. And that's how sex work has evolved. So years ago, it was more street sex work. Street sex work has changed, so street sex work is still an issue, but it's um, not as prominent as it was in the past. And individuals who are involved in street sex work are a, a little different. So um, they're often individuals who may be, and it's a may, it's not everybody, but it is some individuals may be involved in injection drug use, or some individuals may have other addictions that they're, that they're concerned with. And... Um, and it's particularly, that's the issue in the UK. So there's been a good few documentaries in the UK which have highlighted the fact that individuals who are on the streets are more likely to be doing, uh, have an injecting drug use problem and are thus selling sex work for very cheap prices just to get the next hit. So they're a vulnerable population that require a lot of more support. And then there's the human trafficking issue. And we've seen the human trafficking issue here in Cork. There was a brothel closed down in Cork a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we've seen the human trafficking issue all over Ireland. And that is something that requires a whole other set because you have justice. Justice is an issue there for those individuals who have been trafficked in um, support. So what happens after after the, they have been taken from that situation? Where do they go and who's supporting them now? as well as who's taking care of their sexual health and well-being. Because for the first group of individuals who have a profile and are treating it like a business, they're getting regular screening. They're coming in here for contraception. They're using condoms. They are astute in their their mindset and they're astute in how they're working the sex industry, because it is an industry. Whereas for the latter groups, maybe that's not the case. And how do we support them? And the first group, like... Is there a particular age profile of, of that group that would be kind of average or is it just across the board? No, um, my parents used to say that um, for every old sock, there's no shoe. So there's no age profile. It is absolutely everybody. So there's always somebody who will want a certain age cohort or a certain breakdown. Um, the thing with, with that first cohort is they travel a lot. So although you might be living in Dublin, you might travel and commute and you might um, have some time in Cork and some time in Limerick and some time in Galway they're a broader group of individuals who um, who have a, a very broad age range who are viewing um, their work with kind of 
methodology kind of think about their working day and how they're going to plan their time and so there's no there's no kind of one size fits all it's not like they're all in their 20s or on their 30s there's a really broad spectrum and is there is there an element to that first group that are, are, are people getting into sex work to pay their way through for example university or to make their way through like the fact that living expenses and everything else is increasing and is this just an avenue that, that's open to them is that is that part of the reason or absolutely like I think I think in a way we could there's many answers to to that issue definitely some people are we're starting to see some foreign students that are getting involved with sex work to so they move to Ireland they get involved in sex work to fund their time in Ireland and through their time in university um, and it's really expensive to rent it's really expensive to live like the cost of living has gone crazy if you think about rent prices in Cork and the amount of individuals going homeless some people are left with very little option and they have to find what that option is um, and become become nearly intuitive and a bit astute around how they're going to respond to their own needs so yeah that is an issue but it's not the issue for everybody there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, I think, with the sex work industry. And I think that's something that, in a way, we as a society have set up. So we have driven sex work underground because we don't want to talk about it or in some ways we don't want to deal with it. Policy in relation to sex work across Europe is something that I'm really passionate about. So I think we view sex workers um, as this forever all of them together vulnerable group that we need to save or individuals who we shouldn't support because they've made this choice and that's incorrect policies has been driven by old men with grey hair in suits sitting in the european parliament or in leinster house in dublin who think that they have all of the answers and they do not we never ask sex workers what it's like to be a sex worker how the policy is impacting on them and how the law impacts on them. And the law can leave a sex worker in actually quite a vulnerable position. So right now it's illegal to work in a brothel. A brothel being uh, if two sex workers are working in the same house together, that's illegal. Now before, what used to be a real red flag was somebody coming in to a sex worker and asking, are you alone here? So that used to be a really red flag for, oh, maybe I'm in a vulnerable position. I need to get myself out of here. I need to be careful. Right now, that's no longer a red flag because actually maybe it's just the person protecting themselves because they know that the police could break into this situation to close it down. And we've set up the law like that as a nation, but that's not supporting the sex worker at all. That's actually putting them in a place of further vulnerability and as a society, there's never a conversation about it. So how do we change that? We need to talk to sex workers about how the policy and how the law is impacting on their everyday life. And should we go down the road of kind of decriminalising sex work, sex work in, in the same way that people can advocate for decriminalising drug use, for example? Well, So I'm unsure about that. You see, right now it's not... Um, the law states that it's not... The sex worker themselves isn't a criminal. So... Sex work, if you are a sex worker, you will not be um, you will not be charged. It's the person who is purchasing sex work that will be charged. So that's where we are now, which in, in many ways is a good system. But how many times do we hear about somebody being charged for purchasing sex work? Hardly ever. Um, and how do sex workers feel about 
that, like how has that impacted on their lives and their work? We don't actually know because we've never had, so we've never had an open dialogue about about that. And so it's very hard to know how they feel because we've never asked the question. But how do we get to the place where that conversation would happen? Like what format would it take? So I've always been really passionate about the idea that we have a policy dialogue in this area. So it's not that I think that there shouldn't be people in Leinster House or the European Parliament making policy. That's there every day. They know how policy should be written. They know how the law works and they know how to implement. But it's really important that we put sex workers and those individuals in a room together so they can talk about the current law and how it's working and what actually is happening. But we can also talk about what it's like to be at the end of that. So on the front line as a sex worker, what's the impact of that law on a person's everyday life? And how could changes to the law improve the lives and safety? Most important is the safety of these individuals who have chosen sex work, if you're in the first group I was talking about, or who are in sex work for a very different reason and are more vulnerable maybe um, and very marginalised from society. Why are we punishing them more? Why does that make us a good society? I have a real question mark about that. And it, like, is, is it a question of pushing it under the table? Because if you can't, if it's not in the public domain, then in a way people can kind of pretend that it doesn't exist. Yeah, and it, it, that's exactly it. That's a really good point because that's what we did with sexual health for years, wasn't it? You know, if you think years ago, unmarried mothers couldn't talk about them, you know, um, then it was the homosexual community. They didn't exist. But they've existed throughout the ages. Um, then it was individuals who were having an abortion, but they all had to travel to the UK. We as a society have struggled to come to terms with every facet of sexual health. The sex industry is a part of it. Like homosexuality, like individuals who um, are having sex before marriage and unmarried mothers, it's been around for centuries. It's not something new that's happened in 2019. It's something that we're facing um, over a long period of time, uh, pushing it under the carpet isn't going to change that. It's not going to improve it. But I suppose it's uh, what people may consider an easy first step because then they don't really have to deal with it or tackle it head on. Um, we as a centre really believe that it's important to have a dialogue about that. And the sooner we do that, the better for the better for the society we live in the better for sex workers and the better for the general public. And see the the, the third group that you mentioned, the, yeah. the people who get caught up in human trafficking. Mm. That's obviously, a, must be a massive challenge if are people that yeah. are caught up in that coming into the sexual health centre as well. Yeah. Um, yes, they are coming into the sexual health centre, but they're also coming to the Cork Sexual Violence Centre. So we're involved in um, a sexual health network in Cork. We're very lucky to have eight organisations that all have a role in the area of sexual health in Cork City and we've come together to launch mysexualhealth.ie which is a website and resource. The Cork Sexual Violence Centre which is part of that does an awful lot of work with those women who have been trafficked and who um, require support and a safe space to go to after that and Mary Quilly and her team over there really supply that and respond to that through policy work but also through counselling and one-to-one support I was actually uh, talking to Mary ah. about the dinner podcast so hopefully we'll look, we're going to do it today but ah. we arrange it for next week oh great so hopefully we'll get that up on the go um, I guess my next question 
I mean, the people who who are whether they're on the street for one reason or another, um, and one of those reasons could likely be that they're um addicted to drugs or something like that, or mm. someone's caught up in human trafficking, mm. then that's kind of crossing the threshold into like a lot of mental health issues as well. Mm. And so her, you guys have like counsellors and stuff going on in here. Mm. How do you how do you tread those two things where mm. people could be coming in with really serious mental health issues and it's not just about uh, getting a, an STI test? Mm. Mm. So we're really lucky with the team we have in here first. So everyone goes through training when they join the sexual health centre and um, that training kind of focuses on the fact that sexual health is a state of physical, mental and social well-being. You know, it's not just one facet. Sexual health is also linked with a range of risk-taking activities. So we as humans are complex people and we make choices in complex environments and we don't just make a choice to do one little risk-taking activity and nothing else. Actually, sexual health risk-taking, so be it unintended or unprotected sex, is a lot of the time linked with um, increased hazardous alcohol consumption or uh, an opportunity to take recreational drugs. So people are in a kind of a risk-taking sphere. And all of that absolutely leads to mental health issues because there's a high level of anxiety to to those, be it like the fear after alcohol consumption, concerns around your um, drug use or concerns around your sexual health behaviours. So we have a, a number of approaches. We deal with indi- with individuals as we meet them and we always say we're with the person for however long it takes and we follow them along their journey um, we consult with them around all of the concerns that they might have in relation to their sexual health and we try and do kind of motivational and brief interventions so how can we improve how can you change your behaviour for next time so you don't end up in this space and what can you do differently but we also have to recognise when the client may not be the perfect fit for our organisation, that actually maybe they need to come to us for an STI screen or a rapid HIV test, but maybe they need to go to another organisation to talk to somebody around their mental health and wellbeing. So there's no one-size-fits-all approach with that. It's more meeting the client where they're at um, and trying to figure out what's the best thing for them in this moment in time. Would that be kind of a... I guess that's kind of a difference, maybe even just from 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 a, from a personal kind of experience perspective. Mm. That if you do go to an STI clinic, or whatever in a hospital, it's very much like jump up, get mm. tested, back out the door again. Mm. Whereas mm. it's a it seems to be a kind of a holistic approach here, where there are other options. Yeah, and I think if for some individuals, it depends on what you come in for. So if you come in for a rapid HIV test, you'll meet one of our health promotion team, and they'll do talk to you about your sexual health, your risk-taking activity, what kind of led you to that, any concerns that you might have and what you might want to change. And we have the time and space to do that. If you come in um, with, as part of having a crisis pregnancy or if you're a person living with HIV, then you can attend one of our counsellors and have a counselling appointment. Or if you have concerns around your sexual health and you're from the LGBT community, we have a sexual health advisor that you can come and talk to um, in relation to any concern you have. So those people kind of fit into some of our tranches of our work 
we're actually, I think STI clinics have, have really transformed and we're really fortunate in Cork. So the STI clinic in the South Infirmary, Victoria University Hospital, actually has a sexual health advisor there as well. So they're now trying to take on that more holistic approach. So you go in, you meet your nurse or your doctor and they talk you through all the tests and they do all the swabs and the blood tests and the urine samples. And then you can go and talk to an individual around vaccines and around how you can protect your sexual health moving into the future. I think the NGO sector and the community sector always had the really positive aspect of being able to be responsive. So we're not held back by the bureaucracy of large organisations and we're not held by um, by those concerns of how do we get through, through loopholes. We're, we have a tight governance through our board of directors and our policies and procedures here. But as the community needs support and as the community needs a different style of of support, we can provide that and we can change and reorientate to meet their needs a lot easier. I have another question just popped into my head there about the sex workers. Oh yeah. In terms of those three groups that you that you mentioned mm-hmm. there how like how can a reason awareness be raised amongst the people who are using um the like say sex workers services mm. because there seems to be three different kind of moral mm. kind of dilemmas or mm. in terms mm. of if someone is going to sexual a sex, a sex worker mm. where they're going mm. and what impact that's having on the person that yeah. they're going to yeah well, I think that's they're, they're kind of three categories that I have really roughly made for myself. And that's how I would view them. I don't think that's kind of how all society view them or even how probably sex workers themselves would define would define them. Um, I think for individuals who are accessing sex work, actually, it's really important for them to be aware of the law. So it's actually illegal for them to purchase sex work. And once you do, you are um, prohibiting the law and you are liable to be charged for same. I think um, before doing any of that, it's really important to know that there's services out there that you can talk to. So why um, do you want to access sex work? And you need to have a conversation with how happy you are with your sexual health, um, what concerns you might have, um, and what what it is that's driving you to make that decision. Because there's a reason behind all of these decisions. Mm. You mentioned earlier that um, the during the sexual health clinics oh, yeah. that there has been an increase in people who are coming in um, to take part in those clinics because of the knock-on effect of using anabolic steroids. Oh yeah, so actually anabolic steroids is something that um, we're seeing an increase in not actually through the clinics but more through our helpline and through our drop-in supports so anabolic steroids are an issue that Ireland is facing nationally really and it's something we see a lot of in gyms all around but one of the issues it's leading to is erectile dysfunction among men so people drop in um, and they meet our receptionist and they might ask to talk to somebody one to one and have a chat and it's very difficult actually it's hard for them to to say a lot but they'll struggle to say I'm facing erectile dysfunction at the moment and I don't know why and that's a really difficult p- 
point. And so we try and make that as easy for them as possible. For some individuals, you'll know if they're on anabolic steroids, they'll be exceptionally bulked and it's just exceptionally clear from just seeing them. And for some individuals, it's not. And so you might have to go around the houses for a long time to talk about, right, if you're suffering from erectile dysfunction, what's changed in your diet? What supplements are you taking? What could the impact of that be? But it's an emerging issue that we need to consider and how we're going to tackle that. You know what? We've just launched our strategic plan and it's something that we have included in it. But it's going to be a challenge for everybody because some of the anabolic steroid use is legal and some of it is completely not. And the impact of that and how you wean somebody off a drug that they have been on, because it is a drug at the end of the day, if they've been on that for a long time and their dependency in that, the impact it's having on their body, how do you change that? That's something that needs to be considered within the medical profession. Like I've been involved in the, the debate around raising more awareness around mm-hmm. the anabolic steroid use in general, and it it's clearly on the increase. Yeah. And it seems to be that you have kind of like a bit of a, a crossroads here because of the fact that you're dealing with the after effects of possible anabolic steroid use mm-hmm. with erectile dysfunction and also i mean it seems like things it things are kind of like seem to be when you keep boiling taking off the layers and going down and down everything is connected at the end of the day and when you look at the anabolic steroid use i mean that has to be connected with the prevalence of social media and yeah. how attached that we've become to our own sort of self-image and that every, the things have become way more sexualized as well yeah in, in a lot of ways so like your everyday now with instagram and insta stories and trying to keep up with your social network and your social peers that's a really hard road to go down you know and if you are constantly comparing yourself to somebody else um and feeling that you're coming up short that's quite hard because you're in actually a position where you're not really comfortable with yourself. You're not really happy in your own skin. And it takes a while for all of us to get to the point where you're happy in your own skin. But it's very hard and you can understand where people are coming from. We're being, there's a whole industry behind magazines to tell us that you need more makeup, you need new clothes, you need to change your appearance, you need to look a certain way. Um there's a lot of money being pumped into that industry, so it's not a surprise. Like you could say that we have become commodified as people. We're just like consumers who it suits mm-hmm. the people who are selling stuff to us to become more self-conscious and more envious so that we can buy the products that they're selling. And then we become kind of, in a way, mm-hmm. self-obsessed, not in a way that's like creating a positive connection with ourselves, but in a negative way, yeah. which leads on to increased... Um, I guess feelings of like poor self-worth yeah yeah and low self-esteem it's really hard and we, I was watching a documentary recently and it was talking about the fashion industry and how we as a society are now being forced through commercialism to think that the second you buy a t-shirt or a pair of trousers or a pair of runners that they're old and you need new hair because years ago they used to just be you know summer clothes and winter clothes whereas now it's new fashion trends all the time to try and get you to purchase. That's the fast, the documentary about fast, fast fashion, fashion on Netflix. Is, yeah. it, is it called fast fashion? Yes, I think yeah. it was. It was like the woman went to India and stuff. And yes, like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It was massively intriguing, wasn't it? Yeah. The True Cost, that's what it's called. That one, okay. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I can't remember. Classic. Here, how did you get involved in all this yourself? 
So my, my background, I actually was in UCC before this. So I was in the School of Public Health and I was a research lecturer um, and I worked on alcohol use actually was my primary of research. So I spoke to university students about their alcohol consumption and I tried to develop typologies um, to look at what, why individuals drank um, and what kind of social settings they were in and what was driving, what was motivating that alcohol consumption. And I love this idea that actually advertising, they always segment the population. So they think about the population segments and how we can target them effectively. And I think public health needs to do the same. So we need to create typology so we can target public health messages. Like using messages. their tools against them. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. They've created it, it's worked effectively. So how do we do it better ourselves? Um, and so at the time, actually, I was involved in the Health Promoting University Initiative and realised that no university in Ireland had a sexual health promotion policy. But there's masses of students out there. And it's a point in time where you've left home, you are experimenting, you are left to your own devices and you take risks. And it's, there's an awful lot of risk taking behaviour that happens in the university student population. So we started developing a sexual health promotion policy. Um, and I became totally intrigued by the area of sexual health. So an opportunity opened here to be the new executive director. And I couldn't say no. I was delighted and I was really thrilled when I got the job. It was a real job of my dreams um, because I was coming into an organisation that was responding to a community's needs. And that was at the forefront of what it was like to be in a really anxious, vulnerable space. And could add the ability to change someone's path, to change someone's behaviour, but to really change someone's day. Things can aren't as bad as they seem and aren't as bad as they've built it up to be. And we can get upstream so we can educate people around their sexual health and well-being. We can talk around sexual health and well-being to vulnerable or forgotten populations like people with mild intellectual disabilities. We do great work with those individuals who shouldn't be infantilized, who go through puberty, who have a sexual health and well-being and who deserve support like all of us. And so I, it's just a great place to work and it's a great place to be. Like this place really is, as we were saying earlier, uh, it's, I mean, I brought it up, not, not you didn't bring it up, but mm. the, the, the book I was reading earlier, uh, which I, I think that this place does seem to be like a real pillar of the community and it's an, a part of the infrastructure that people may walk past it like 50 times a week if they're going mm. to work but might never realise it until they need it and mm. then the fact that it's going, it is so open um, and accessible means that it's kind of an invaluable part of the community really like in, in every sense of the way yeah the yeah it's a real resource I think and we're we're start you know just before you came actually our receptionist said god we're getting busier and busier aren't we it's non-stop and I was like it is and it's just great so we often have young people in for coffee, tea or hot chocolate downstairs to talk about condom demonstrations or to talk about their sexual health or to talk about the fact that they have concerns about something or what is an STI, what's it look like, what do they need to watch out for. Um, but we also have individuals, we facilitate a support group around sex addiction. Um, so we have everything and anything under one roof and it's a one-stop shop. You come here and if we can't be the answer... Will direct you towards the answer. In quite broad terms, do you think that Ireland has progressed? Because I'm thinking back to even whenever I was in university, just because you were talking about uh, working in unis there. I mean, I can't remember me or any of my friends really talking about sexual health mm. when we were 
in our early 20s. But the people that I'm friends with now who are in their early 20s seem to be way more open mm-hmm. about uh, talking about it and about also going to um, get screens and stuff done. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we've moved on? I think we have. Yes, no, I do. I think we have moved on. I say it cautiously, though, and I think that's because we need an awful lot of individuals here who are still really concerned and worried about coming in for an STI screen or um, individuals knowing that they've had an STI screen or the fact that they come on their own and don't come with individuals like for support in that moment in time. So people are still quite private about it. And you can understand that it's an intimate area of our lives and you know, an awful lot of people don't want to discuss it openly with everybody. So I think, yes and no, we've moved forward as a society and legislation has changed and we have been really open and there's been some great things that have happened in Ireland in terms of policy change and in terms of open dialogue around the broad area of sexual health. But I still think if I think of things like the sex industry or period poverty or people with mild intellectual disabilities or individuals who, um, you know, are in non-formal education settings and are receive very little sex education, we have a way to go. Period poverty seems to be something that's coming to the fore more and more at the minute. Yeah, so we've just launched our five-year strategic plan and period poverty is an absolute part of that. We're, we really need to respond to individuals' needs in relation to period poverty. So from young people going to school um, and not having their kind of required sanitary requirements for themselves, that's really hard, as well as for individuals who are living um, homeless. So it's not just for the homeless community, it's for individuals who aren't homeless but can't afford to buy any of um, the items they need for their period within every month. That's a really hard place to be. And so what we're hoping to do here at the centre is to provide sanitary items to women so they can just drop into reception, collect them and walk away. Um, And they don't have to ask questions, they don't have to respond, they just need to ask for the items and have them. And that's the thing we're trying to do, is to make everything as accessible as possible. Are we moving towards a time where sanitary products are accessible across the world? Yeah, well I hope so. Like you can get condoms and lubricant here within the centre free of charge and that's provided... Um, to us by the health service executive and it's a brilliant brilliant service and we're very grateful for their condom distribution service because it allows us to give condoms to those most vulnerable and to individuals who are um, trying to prevent pregnancies and trying to prevent STIs Um, and I think we need to think about that in terms of um, reproductive health as well so for sanitary items they should be freely available to people especially to people who require it so if we're as a society are going to be kind and supportive and actually be a society and community we have to think of others and some individuals need help and support in that area and we should be here to respond to that there's the charity in cork at the minute that have campaign on the go for people who want to help out with the period poverty is it the homeless period oh homeless period Ireland. yeah they do great work yeah it's great they've done brilliant work i think in in responding to uh, period poverty and in getting a national conversation going actually and it's something that we really picked up on so a really good friend of mine uh, started highlighting period poverty as an issue to me and I was like 
it really resonated and I was like we've got to do something about this and so after interviews and so our strategic plan was interviews with stakeholders and young people and young people really highlighted it as well as an issue that they were facing as part of their everyday life and so if we're going to be authentic and respond to clients needs that's something they've highlighted that's something that's happening and we need to do something about it and I know they have a collection point in the key co-op yeah and the other place that does great work in this area is Penny Dinners so um, penny dinners are already stocking an awful lot of sanitary items for well to collect from them there. So hopefully we'll just be another collection point in the future and we'll be able to effectively collaborate with Key Co-op, Penny Dinners and ourselves. Unreal. Um, where will we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> where is the next step? So as we were talking about our plan, actually, one of the things that we're really trying to do is be better partners over the next five years. So we really believe that um, sexual health is actually an integral part of everyone's life, but it's really best delivered through capacity building in other venues. So right now we go out to the Simon community and we provide hep C testing and HIV testing for the homeless community. And hopefully we'll be able to provide period poverty. So that's something we can, we can effectively do in the future. But we're also hoping to purchase a mobile van moving into the future so we can take sexual health out into the streets we can meet people after nights out on Grand Parade at a point in time where they may be about to have a risk-taking activity, where they may need to talk to someone about their sexual health, or they may be need to avail of free condoms and lubricant. And that's something that we're hoping to start and implement. Oh, no, so what's, is there a timeline for that? Or like, is, is it, is that... So a time we're open to all donations and we're open. If someone gives us a van, we'd start tomorrow, but we don't have the funding for that yet. But it's, I think, one of the first steps with any strategy and something I was really committed to was, um, was writing it down. So somebody in one of our interviews, a few people actually, suggested that sexual health needs to be out there and that people need to see us on Grand Parade or on Patrick Street. Um, at a point in time when they need us and when they need us most when most people spoke about their risk-taking activity was after nightclubs or after a big night out with friends and so they spoke about this idea of mobile vans and I had seen um, some work when I was in Berlin last year with mobile vans and there's some more work in Amsterdam where they have mobile vans and I thought Cork needs a mobile van so until you write it down it'll never happen Right now, we need to figure out who, how we're going to get it funded and how we're going to make it a reality for the people of Cork that there will be a sexual health mobile van out there and the people can access the service where they want to access it, not here within a centre, but actually some people want to access it as they're walking home right there on the street. That sounds like a classic, yeah? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Unreal. Um, how can people get in touch with the centre or keep up with what you're doing? So you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. So um, we're on both and we're, tr- we're trying to be as active as possible. Uh, we're renewing um, our website at the moment and our website is www.sexualhealthcentre.com. Uh, we put all of our information up there from the services we provide to how you can contact us to our opening hours um, and then our team. So you can, before you come into us, you can log on and check out our team and then you'll see every face of the individual that works here and know who you're coming in to meet before you actually see us. Um, and then you can always email us. So you can email us at info at sexualhealthcentre.com. Uh, we'll respond to you within 24 hours. So the email is monitored from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and we'll get back to you with any of the information you need 
And finally, if you want to book an appointment, so that might be an appointment for HIV counselling or for a rapid HIV test. It might be um, an appointment for a pregnancy test or a crisis pregnancy counselling or post-abortion counselling if you've had an abortion either last month or 25 years ago. It doesn't matter. Come into us and have a chat. Or it might be for sexual health advice, drop-in advice, condoms, sexual health workshops, health promotion workshops run by our outreach worker then just ring the centre and that's on 021-427-6676. And if you ever have any concern, so if you just really feel, be it the smallest concern or be it something very big, we're here. So do drop in, do uh, um, make a phone call. Because remember, sexual health is our everyday. So it's not like it's going to be very shocking to us or it's going to be the first time we've heard it. We're very open to having a chat about anything. I hope you enjoyed that conversation there. Gura Ked Milamaigat to Martin for taking the time out of his day to record that episode as usual. We covered some serious stuff in that podcast. So, I mean, I think that you probably got from the tone of the conversation with Martin that the staff at the Sexual Health Centre are very open, non judgmental, and there to help. So, if there was any issues that came up in that podcast that are relevant to you or that you've been thinking about addressing then just remember that you can always go in phone call or email even to the sexual health center and get some straight up and trustworthy advice from them you know what to do if you want to support the podcast you can go and find the rebel matters podcast on patreon and sign up to become a patron and help to cover some of the costs of making these podcast episodes and keeping the whole show on the road i really appreciate everyone who has signed up to the patreon so far and also i very much so appreciate people who are getting in touch with messages sharing the rebel matters podcast on your instagram stories and let me know where you're listening and that you're enjoying the podcast it really helps to give me a bit of a boost to keep the keep the episodes coming we've had an episode every single week since I think the end of January now and it's going to keep going so keep on coming back on Friday mornings for it like and subscribe to the podcast share it around on social media talk to your friends about it and I don't know if there's anything else I think that's it it's been a pleasure I need to go and get some sleep because I'm back in to the strength shop guys tomorrow morning and then i'm gonna go and explore berlin by bicycle and get another training session and hopefully and then go and see all going well what the berlin nightclubs are like fill in about that next week hopefully have a couple of good stories for you slang of oil of cardigal kenny fury biggie jasna killer august chucky arla